Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we've got a number of stories about the ongoing housing crisis in our region, as well as the sad story about a fatal hit-and-run accident this week in Wellfleet. Weather Will is away again this week, but we hope to have him back next week. Ira Wood is here, and he's got a matter of opinion about rich people doing risky things. Local luminary Sal Del Deo has rejected an offer from Cape Cod National Seashore Superintendent Brian Carlstrom of a two-year special-use permit for the dune shack that he has occupied seasonally since 1953. The National Park Service mailed a notice to quit to Sal Del Deo on March 27th. National Seashore workers boarded up the shack on June 29th. The offer of the two-year permit came one week later. The eviction drew local and national press coverage, and U.S. Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren, U.S. Representative Bill Keating, State Senator Julian Sear, and State Representative Sarah Peake all raised objections. The day after the shack was boarded up, Carlstrom called Romulo Del Deo at the direction of officials in the Interior Department to start a conversation about restoring Sal's access to the shack. However, that conversation appears to have reached an impasse. Sal told the Independent that he, his family, and their supporters disapprove of the move the park is making, not only on them, but on all the other dune shacks. In Sal's view, the whole process treats the area as a piece of real estate to be capitalized on, and that goes against all the principles of the Dune Shack District. Sal's son Romolo said that he and his father were taking a stand in honor of the late Josephine Del Deo, who fought her whole life to save all of the shacks. Romolo remarked that it would be bittersweet if the Del Deos were able to save their shack but all the others were gone. The resident of one other shack, Janet Armstrong, received an eviction notice almost identical to the one served to Sal Del Deo. The current leasing contest does not include Del Deo shack or the Armstrong shack, which Janet Armstrong has been ordered to vacate by September 2nd. Her family purchased the shack in 1949, and she began spending time there in the summer of 1952. Meanwhile, the Park Service is conducting a public leasing program for eight other dune shacks that departs from the rules the agency established in its Dune Shack Historic District Preservation and Use Plan in 2012. Those rules were negotiated over years to protect both the shacks themselves and their cultural value. Shack-dwelling families, the select boards of Provincetown and Truro, and an assortment of protesters have strongly objected to the Park Service's actions. 
Critics have especially objected to a provision of the current leasing contest that allows applicants to offer more than market rate rent to win a lease. Together, the two evictions and the leasing contest mean that by fall, there could be only one long-term dune-dwelling family left in the historic district. Of the 10 families in the district, only Mildred Champlin and her daughter Andrea Champlin are not at risk of removal this year. One more dune shack belonging to Conrad Malicote's heirs is not part of the historic district and not subject to eviction or leasing. Romolo said that he has repeatedly raised the other dune shacks with Karlstrom and that Karlstrom has refused to speak about them. National Park Service spokesperson Tracy O'Toole confirmed that Sal Del Deo had declined the option made available to him and said that the family was welcome to bid for a 10-year lease once the agency sets up a public leasing contest for that shack. The Del Deos are planning a public protest for Saturday, July 15th. They have coordinated the plan with Provincetown's police chief, who also alerted the Cape Cod National Seashore to the protest. Chief Ranger Michael Valora called protest organizer Michaela Murphy to encourage her to seek a permit from the Park Service. Murphy said the police chief and chief ranger were very nice, and she believes the rangers are very uncomfortable with the evictions, but they have been put in the position of having to enforce decisions made further up the chain of command. Dune Shack residents aren't the only locals to receive eviction notices recently. Nicholas and Angela Rose and their two children were evicted from their home at the Truro Motor Inn last week, marking the end of the long battle over the property between the town and owners David and Carolyn Delgizzi. The Rose family, who immigrated to Cape Cod from Jamaica in 2014, have lived at the Motor Inn for seven years. But on July 6th, Town Constable Brian Cowing showed up to inform them that they had to be out of the unit by the end of the day. Nicholas Rose told the Independent that afternoon he didn't know where the family was going to go. By sunset, their unit, along with the 35 other units on the property, stood empty. They were the last tenants to leave the motel in a series of court-ordered evictions that took place over the last year. David and Carolyn Delgizzi own at least 31 other properties in Massachusetts, the majority of them on Cape Cod. They rent 18 of those properties year-round, with a total of 86 units, according to court records. The Delgizis have been renting units at the Motor Inn to year-round residents since 2015 under their motel license, which they were able to renew every year until 2020. In 2018, inspectors from the health, fire, and building departments conducted inspections of all 36 units. They found rooms lacking smoke and carbon monoxide detectors and as many as four occupants in units of only 185 square feet. They also found the property had a failed septic system under Title V regulations. In 2019, the town initiated legal action against the Delgizis in an effort to require the owners to correct violations or vacate the property. For three years, the Delgizis refused to submit detailed plans to bring the building up to code. Judge Donna Salvidio, in July 2020, ordered the Delgizis to find alternative housing for all their tenants. 
Her order was ignored, according to court records. The Delgizis and the town came to an agreement in February 2022 in which the landlords were to pay a property management company to come up with a plan to relocate the remaining tenants within 15 miles of the inn. According to court documents, the Delgizis would be responsible for all costs and expenses of the relocation of the occupants. None of that happened. The plan to find housing for Truro Motor Inn tenants on the Outer Cape quickly proved impossible because there were no affordable housing units available. Nicholas Rose said that many of his neighbors ended up moving off Cape. The landlord's contract with the property management company dissolved because the Delgizis had not paid the bill. The Delgizis are no strangers to unpaid bills. Various towns have filed at least 15 tax takings against the Delgizis in the past 11 years, including three in Truro. David Delgizzi has failed to file personal state income taxes since 2005, and the IRS also filed a federal tax lien against David Delgizzi for $1.88 million in unpaid personal income taxes. Nicholas Rose said that the Delgizis have not helped cover the cost of their motel stay or any relocation-related expenses, which they were ordered to do by the agreement the town and the Delgizis reached in February 2022. According to Maggie Flanagan of the Homeless Prevention Council, which has helped several tenants of the Truro Motor Inn relocate in the past two years, none of her clients received financial help from the Delgizis. As for the Truro Motor Inn, the neglected building's fate remains unknown. Amid all the evictions, there is some good news on the housing front in our area. Habitat for Humanity of Cape Cod was set to go before the Zoning Board of Appeals in Wellfleet at its July 13th meeting to take the final step in its review of a plan to build four affordable houses off Old Kings Highway. The review process began nine years ago. The latest move addresses the income limits that define who would be eligible to buy the homes. ZBA Chair Sharon Inger said the potential adjustments to the comprehensive permit conditions were routine. Habitat's permit is for two two-bedroom and two three-bedroom houses. The conditions currently call for all four homes for the first-time sale to go to people earning no more than 65% of area median income, or AMI. Habitat is asking to restrict the first sale of two homes to people who earn a bit less, no more than 60% of AMI. At the same time, Habitat is asking to adjust the limit upward for the first sale of the other two houses to 80%. All subsequent sales of the homes will be deed-restricted in perpetuity to buyers who earn at or below 80% of AMI. The change, already approved by the town's housing authority, would align the income eligibility limit for the Old Kings Highway project with other habitat developments. It will still be a few years before any of the families who ultimately get the homes move in. Infrastructure will go in starting this fall, and volunteer wall raisings will be held in 2024 or early 2025. According to Wellfleet's housing production plan, 40 of the town's 1,550 year-round units were classified as affordable as of November 2022, putting the town just shy of 2.6%. 
It needs an additional 115 affordable units to reach the state's 10% benchmark, according to the plan. There is a lot of history in the few blocks at the juncture of Main Street and Pleasant Lake Avenue in historic Harwich Center, but much of it is generally unknown or not appreciated, according to former state senator Paul Doan. Doan, a 12th-generation Cape Codder, is planning to enlighten people about the town's rich 300-plus year history. On behalf of the Harwich Historical Society, he will be conducting five 90-minute walking tours through the village this summer. The first tour will be held on Saturday, July 15th at 3 p.m. The tour will touch on the early founding families, the Broadbrooks, the Underwoods, and the Snows, as well as colonial church life, the Cape's longtime tallest building, and the works, homes, and workshops of nationally renowned artists John Rogers, Elmer Kroll, and Charles Cahoon. The tour will begin at Brooks Academy, considered to be the jewel of historic Harwich Center, and which now serves as the Harwich Historical Society's museum. Along with the July 15th tour, Doan will also provide tours on Saturday, July 29th, August 12th, August 26th, and September 16th. Reservations are necessary, and more information can be found at harwichhistoricalsociety.org or by calling 508 432 8089. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. A man police believe to be the victim of a hit-and-run Monday on Route 6 in Wellfleet has died of his injuries. The man, identified as Jeffrey Richardson of Brookfield, Connecticut, died Tuesday, according to Wellfleet Police. On Monday night, around 9.40, police went to the intersection of Route 6 and Nahot Bluffs Road, where they found Richardson suffering from severe head injuries lying in the road. Police are asking the public's help in providing any information about the incident. They're specifically looking for any vehicle with damage to the passenger side, including the passenger side mirror. Contact Sergeant Nicholas Daly with any information at 508-349-3702. It's no secret that there's a housing crisis in our region. The effects of the housing situation have also caused a health care crisis. At a June 30th roundtable with top state health officials, social service providers from the outer, lower, and mid-cape were all clear that housing is the main obstacle hindering their ability to field staff and stabilize clients. Massachusetts Secretary of Health and Human Services Kate Walsh made the trip to Provincetown with Department of Public Health Commissioner Robbie Goldstein, who is a part-time resident of Provincetown, State Senator Julian Sear of Truro and State Representative Sarah Peake of Provincetown were also present. Walsh independently brought up housing early in the discussion, prompting a flood of comments about the sector's unlivable wage standards. Dan Gates, CEO of the AIDS Support Group of Cape Cod, said it's increasingly difficult for his 30 year-round employees to live on the Cape. Gates also said the organization has increased salaries by 30% in the past year to pay livable wages that are ethically sound. 
Stephanie Darty of Bay Cove Human Services in Hyannis, which provides emergency mental health responses across the Cape, said she has also struggled to hire psychiatrists because of housing. Homeless Prevention Council CEO Hadley Luddy emphasized that health and housing are inextricably linked for clients themselves. Damian Archer of Outer Cape Health Services spoke of his organization's staffing shortage, adding that what makes it even worse is that as people leave, it adds even more stress to an extremely stressed-out workforce. Senator Sear said that the Cape delegation at the State House is working hard on things like a transfer fee on luxury real estate that could help fund workforce housing, but he also pointed to the importance of voting in local elections, such as in Truro and Wellfleet, where housing coordinator positions passed at town meeting, but not at the ballot box. Representative Peake also brought up the lack of regionalization in Massachusetts governance, a rarely discussed snag for housing development across the state. Peake told Secretary Walsh that hundreds of units in the pipeline are taking years longer and costing millions of dollars more because of convoluted local approvals. Housing was also a hot topic in Orleans as new town manager Kimberly Newman was introduced to a gathering of board and committee chairs. In only her fourth day on the job, Newman dove right into the most vexing problem facing town officials across the Cape. Housing has become prohibitively expensive, not just for low-income residents and members of the local workforce that so much of the housing discussion centers upon, Newman, who recently relocated from central Massachusetts, had her own stories about the difficulties that come with trying to find housing on the peninsula. Newman, who's being paid a base salary of $195,000, couldn't find anything in Orleans or even within 20 miles of Orleans. She estimates that she visited 45 open houses on the Cape in the months since she was offered the Orleans job in April. Eventually, Newman found a house in West Yarmouth. Newman said the key to bringing more affordable housing to Orleans rests in planning and zoning. Local control can help carve out space for more affordable and workforce housing, but also avoid unwanted development in town. But others on Thursday said the town can't rely solely on zoning to create more affordable housing. Jerry Mulligan, who chairs the town Zoning Board of Appeals, said that with market rate housing prices approaching $1 million on the low end, it's hard to incentivize developers to make units affordable. Mulligan identified Locust Road and $800,000 as the low end of the market in Orleans. Mark Matheson of the select board said a balance needs to be struck between providing affordable units and making projects attractive for developers. Without more affordable housing, the town will continue to lose out on local workers. In the trades, he said, those workers are already running in short supply. In Harwich, Director of Planning and Community Development Paul Halkiotis abruptly retired recently, catching some town officials by surprise. Town Administrator Joseph Powers was on vacation and not available for comment. Halkiotis did not submit a letter announcing his retirement. Assistant Town Administrator Megan Eldridge wrote in an email to the Chronicle, 
that Halkiotis' last day was Monday, June 26th, and he announced that in person. The town has gone through a number of department head transitions in the past year and a half, and this is the second major departure of a department head in the past couple of weeks, after Health Department Director Katie O'Neill resigned a couple of weeks ago to take a position in the Health Department at Barnstable County. Over the past 15 months, every department head working out of Town Hall, except for Conservation Administrator Amy Usowski, has resigned or retired. Halkiotis' decision to retire comes at approximately the end of his six-month probationary period. He started working for the town in mid-December. He replaced John Idman, who served as Planning and Community Development Director for one year before taking a similar position in Brewster in May of 22. In his six months serving the town, Halkiotis reshaped the town's accessory dwelling unit bylaw, crafted a large-scale, ground-mounted photovoltaic arrays bylaw, and helped implement new floodplain regulations, all of which were approved in the May town meeting. Halkiotis, a resident of Marshfield, could not be reached for comment. The Truro Select Board voted unanimously during a June 27th meeting to place a new $30 million Department of Public Works facility at 340 Route 6, a wooded area next to the police and fire departments. DPW Director Jared Cabral said that a two-thirds vote at town meeting would be needed to approve the site for public works use. Now that the site has been selected, Cabral said the next steps will be to determine funding for the project. The town hired engineering consulting firm Weston and Sampson to conduct an initial feasibility study for the project, which was completed in 2019. In a report earlier this year, Weston and Sampson said that the existing facility no longer meets the needs of a DPW whose responsibilities have increased significantly. Building a facility with indoor space for vehicle storage is a top priority. Currently, many of the DPW vehicles are stored outside, which leads to faster deterioration and stormwater pollution. The Route 6 site was chosen from among five options, including the 70-acre Walsh property behind Truro Central School, a 40-acre property at 2 Sandpit Road, and 9 Noons Drive, which the town is looking into purchasing. Cabral recommended putting the facility at 340 Route 6, which he said came with advantages, including an existing water main and septic system, He said co-locating the DPW facility with the police and fire departments could make servicing vehicles from all three departments quicker and easier. The proposal to use the Route 6 site has drawn objections from abutters, some of whom spoke at the June 27th meeting. During the meeting, Select Board member Bob Weinstein called on residents not to take legal action against the project and avoid repeating what he called the Cloverleaf fiasco. In early 2021, a group of Truro residents appealed the town's approval of an affordable housing development at the so-called Cloverleaf in North Truro. The suit delayed the project for over a year and significantly increased its costs. 
Weinstein said that people should pay attention to the fact that if they object and sue the community for making a decision about the site, it will have a negative impact on their pocketbook, reflected in increased costs to the town. The 5th Annual Cape Verdean Festival is scheduled for Saturday, July 22nd in Brooks Park in Harwich. The festival celebrates Cape Verdean heritage and culture and recognizes the instrumental role Cape Verdeans play in Harwich and across the Cape. The Cape Verdean community has made major contributions to the cranberry and fishing industries and served in leadership roles in Harwich over the years. Last year, the festival honored Albert Reneo as Cape Verdean of the Year. Reneo served the community for a quarter century as highway surveyor and director of highways. Reneo has been an active volunteer in the community since his retirement. He's also assisted in the Cape Verdean Oral History Project. The new Cape Verdean of the Year will be announced during the festival. The festival will include music by the John Miranda Band, and Warren Miranda said they're working on bringing a Cape Verdean dance group. There will be craft vendors, antique cars, and, of course, Cape Verdean food. The festival, which is free, will take place in Brooks Park from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Saturday, July 22nd. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. On July 16, 1999, John Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr.'s Piper Saratoga aircraft was reported overdue and missing by the control tower at Martha's Vineyard Airport. It took three days for searchers to locate the underwater crash site, as cable news breathlessly reported every development. On June the 18th of this year, one hour and 45 minutes into its dive, the Titan submersible, on an expedition to view the wreck of the Titanic off Newfoundland, lost communication with its support ship, triggering a four-day search, again breathlessly followed by the media. While the details of each tragedy were vastly different, I was struck by certain similarities. For instance, the lack of safety concerns, the vast wealth of the deceased, but mostly the public fascination with rich people doing risky things. While most of us are familiar by now with the alleged problems in the design of the submersible, carbon fiber composite materials used in the ship's hull that failed to withstand the great pressure of the ocean depths, it's well to remember the misjudgments involved in the fatal Kennedy flight. The NTSB itself found that JFK Jr. crashed because he was an inexperienced pilot who'd become disoriented and lost control of his plane in the dark, hazy night. Most people's initial reaction to the Kennedy tragedy was total sympathy and sorrow, especially here in New England where the Kennedys were icons and everyone of a certain age remembered three-year-old John John raising his tiny hand in salute at the state funeral when his father's casket left St. Matthew's Cathedral. 
But it wasn't long before I started to hear snide comments. When I asked one man how he felt about JFK Jr.'s death, he said, well, about the same as he'd feel about mine, which may have been true, but struck me as awfully cold. Soon enough, the conspiracy theory started that JFK Jr. had intentionally crashed his plane because his marriage was on the rocks and his magazine venture had failed, that he was murdered by the deep state because he was planning to reopen an investigation into his father's death. But whatever was said, the public couldn't get enough. The barrage of comments following the Titan implosion filled the media news for days, ranging from genuine sympathy for the passengers to sarcasm about stupid billionaires. But many of us couldn't help asking ourselves why so much attention was paid. Why, in a world in which good people die tragically every single day, we seem to be obsessed with the deaths of the rich and famous. Within hours of the Titan implosion, for instance, more than 300 Pakistani nationals were killed when an overcrowded fishing trawler capsized off the coast of Greece. Who were they? What were their names? We know that Shahzada Dawood was a passenger on the Titan submersible, but he was one of the richest men in Pakistan. We know that his attempt to view the Titanic was a risky adventure, but how much more risky than boarding an overcrowded boat with your family in a desperate attempt to flee your poverty-stricken country and start a new life? My theory is that poor people dying is just not news. In fact, the poorer you are, at least in the eyes of the media, the sooner you're expected to die. Rich people, on the other hand, especially fabulously rich and famous people, are expected to use their fortunes to circumvent the problems that crush the rest of us. Illness? Get the very best doctors and buy all the experimental drugs. Trouble with the law? We all know that the best lawyers can keep the rich out of jail. Catastrophic climate events? Just move to one of your other houses. It's front-page news when the rich and famous succumb to the same problems that we all have because on some level we believe that the rich are somehow protected from doing dangerous and risky things. And the trouble for them at least in the case of JFK Jr. and the passengers on the Titan, is that they believe it too. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Stirred Not Shaken with Hank and Andy on listener-supported community radio. WOMR.